Inevitably, one of her throws went way off, the ball crashing down onto Jamie's magazine, knocking it first into his lap, then onto the ground. The ball startled and frightened him, and his sudden panic had no doubt embarrassed him as well, and so he leaped to his feet, angrily strode across the yard, grabbed Laura by the shoulders, and started screaming at her. She fought back, pushing him away violently and yelling into his face. I ran over to her, trying to get between the two, and started screaming just as loudly. We were still going at it when we heard the door open at the back of the house and saw our father step out onto the small veranda which overlooked the backyard. He didn't say a word, but only stood, his hands holding firmly to the railing of the veranda as he peered down at us. All our attention was trained upon him. All our eyes lifted up as if he were descending from the clouds. A complete silence fell over the backyard as the three of us stood in place, saying nothing, only watching him as he watched us during that brief, oddly delicious instant before he turned and walked away. What had we felt at that moment? As a child, it would have been impossible for me to say. But that morning, as I unexpectedly recalled this single incident with all the detail of something that had happened only minutes before, it seemed to me that I had felt the sweet and awesome luxury of a hand that stayed my hand. I had sensed my father's restraining firmness, and because of it, perhaps because of nothing more than his exercise of it, I had loved him deeply and inexpressibly. The solitary killer who'd crouched beneath that mask of paternal care and responsibility had never appeared to me. Instead, I'd glimpsed only that part of him that was beautiful and grave and unreachable, that figure of a father, steadfast and enduring, that all men wish to have and wish to be. And so it struck me that morning that my father's life had to have been a vast deception a lie he'd lived in while he'd lived with us, harboring whatever resentment and bitterness it was that had finally boiled over on that day in November. I was still thinking about him when I got to the office a few minutes later. The architectural offices of Simpson and Lowe were on the top floor of a five-story cubicle structure made of steel and tented glass. It was a purely functional design, and no one but Mr. Lowe the firm's sole surviving founder, ever liked it. Over the years, the rest of us had either resented it or been embarrassed by it, thinking it a rather unimaginative structure, unlikely to impress prospective clients, especially those who might be interested in more innovative designs for their own projects. But despite all our criticism, Mr. Lowe had remained firm in his commitment to it, stubbornly holding on out of loyalty to its aging pipes and circuits, its squeaky hinges and buckling tile. Wally had been arguing for years that we should move the whole operation to the new business center north of the city, but Mr. Lowe had always refused, shaking his head with that enormous dignity he still maintained, despite the palsy that rocked his hands. "'Don't abandon things,' he once told Wally scoldingly at the end of one of these discussions." Then he rose and left the room, knowing that Wally remained behind to mutter against him resentfully, but wholly indifferent to anything he might say, 
as if all his malicious whisperings were nothing more than a light desert breeze. Wally was already at his desk, meticulously going over the details for a new office building when I arrived that morning. Another day at the venerable old firm, he said with a wink as I passed his desk. I'd worked as an architect for Simpson and Lowe for almost fifteen years by then, and I realize now that it was no accident that I chose architecture as my profession, even though I had no great ability at geometry or drawing or any of the other skills the work requires. Rather, I chose it because it fulfilled an abiding need, appealed to one of the deeper strains of my character my desperate need for order. For all its creativity, architecture is finally about predictability. It runs on what is known rather than what is not. In a fully executed building, one knows with a comforting certainty exactly.